All right, well, why don't we take our Bibles and open up to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 4, if you would. Today for our scripture reading in Isaiah, we're going to be reading verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4. 1 and 2. This is what the word of the Lord says to us today from the book of Isaiah. For seven women will take hold of one man in that day, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the earth will be the pride and adornment of the survivors of Israel. Pray one more time with me today. Father, we thank You again. Um, Even as we look at the life of Israel, the life of Judah, what a saga of redemption. And in that saga we see the power and the force of sin and judgment. We understand the great cosmic upheavals of history. All that was endured for Your name. Lord, we thank You that coming out of the history of redemption is the attributes of God. Out of the sin and judgment of Israel, we learn of Your wrath and Your righteousness and Your justice and Your mercy. Oh God, as we think about the abominable offenses of the house of Judah, the apostasy, the covenant breaking of the house of Israel, we think of the fact that what man deserves is to be treated according to their deeds. But You are a God that doesn't deal with us according to our deeds. But You have sent forth the branch And the branch is the branch of salvation. And the branch of salvation is Christ. And so through Jesus we have a great propitiation. We have a great reconciler. We have peace because of Him. He is our peace. And oh Lord, we think of Israel's history. We think of Judah's sin. We are no better than they are. And Lord, we are no less fortunate to see the mercy and the grace than they saw in their day. As the author of Hebrews says, even as they had good news preached to them, so we too have good news preached to us. And oh, how will we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Please bless our time together now, Lord, as we look at this marvelous text of Scripture. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I took on a, quite a task when I decided to do chapter 3, chapter 4 together because they go together. They're really one unit of thought. If you read the uh, commentaries, typically the good ones anyway, they deal with chapter 3 and chapter 4 together. 
kind of inseparable. You don't really get the whole story in chapter 3. You don't really get the whole story in chapter 4. So you've got to go chapter 3, chapter 4 together. But there is, in verses 1 and 2, sort of a, a, a whole contextual nutshell. You kind of get everything right there in those two verses. So that's why I decided to really capitalize on that. But we see that chapter 3 kind of becomes the necessary backdrop for what will be an exposition, a vision by the prophet Isaiah of the consummate kingdom of God. That's where everything's going. That's where everything's going. Verse 5, The Lord will create over the whole area of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day, even smoke, and the brightness of a flaming fire by night. And over all the glory there will be a canopy. That's the consummate glory. How do we get there? How do we get there? So Isaiah chapter 3 becomes really the necessary context that kind of helps us to see what's going on here. And maybe even right now you're a little confused how verse 1 starts. Women talking about eating their own bread and wearing their own clothes, laying hold of one man and saying, you know, seven women saying, let us be called by your name. What's going on? Well, what's going on is that God is going to address three things here. Number one, God's going to address the security of the nation of Israel. Number two, He's going to address the vanity of the nation of Israel. That will become more increasingly clear about what we're talking about today. And number three, God is going to bring beauty from ashes. So, we begin with the security of the nation. Turn to chapter 3 to see the background of what led up to this oracle Verses 1 and 2 in chapter 4. God is going to remove the nation's security by systematically dismantling and deconstructing the whole nation. It is breathtaking what took place here in the 8th century B.C. What took place 7th century B.C. when this was all actualized? You can actually outline the destruction that takes place here in this way. Number one, there's economic destruction, verse one. Number two, there's a destruction of leadership, verses two two to four. Verse three, or number three, there's a destruction of the entire civilization. The whole society collapses, verse five. And then we get sort of an indictment. What is left after this? The social construct of the nation has been dismantled. What is left is guilt and shame and contempt. That's it. Number one, the economy. Look at verse one. Behold, the Lord of hosts is going to remove from Jerusalem and Judah both supply and support. The whole supply of bread and the whole support of water. Wow. So in the economic makeup of the nation, especially if you consider what was going on during the time of Uzziah and uh, Jotham, and and even just right leading out of Ahaz's reign, you understand that Uzziah ushered in untold prosperity to Judah and to Israel, or really to, to Judah. And so did Jotham. Jotham perpetuated that prosperity, that economic boom. It was like economy was booming at that time. 
kind of like to bring it into our times. You want to start a business? Start it up. You want to invest? Go invest. You want to build a house? Go get a house. You want to go, buy, go shopping? Go shopping. Time to buy a car. Time to refinance. It's time to get a credit card. Everything's just moving forward, full tilt. Good times. Good times in Judah. But the problem is, is that this economic success and prosperity became the occasion for spiritual apostasy, even as we've already seen. And so, God is going to decimate the entire economy, both supply and support. In other words, you won't get what you need, and you will not supply people what they need. And so, He's going to dry up the crops. He's going to dry up the great aqueducts of the ancient world. If you go to Israel, for example, you see the aqueduct that Herod built. It's like seven miles long, and you see these wonderful architectures. Amazing how they would bring water in all the way from the north and uh, it's just from Syria even, all the way down into Jerusalem. Just prolific what Israel had going on. Well, God's going to remove all that. He's going to dry all that up, and the economy is going to completely crash. More than that, the leaders are going to be humbled. Look at, look at uh, verses 2 to 4. Mighty men, the warrior, the judge, the prophet, the diviner, the elder, the captain of the fifty, the honorable man, the counselor, the expert artisan, so cultural milieu, everything, the artist, the skillful enchanter. These are uh, false prophets, false soothsayers, false diviners that Israel, Judah, was employing to charm them. I will make mere lads their princes. Listen to that. Capricious children are going to rule over them. You want to talk about a society in free fall? You know a society is collapsing when the people that took over, the person at the helm is a capricious, fickle little child that doesn't know anything about life. That person is now in charge. Is that what you want? We're going to see in this text what we can only call revolutions of redemption. Because there's going to be a great cycle of reversals that are going on. This uh, whole chapter 3, chapter 4, just full of irony. Full of this irony that Isaiah uses to bring his, bring his point across. One commentator said this, At this juncture in the nation, the nation has been gutted. It became a plaything of, whim, of the whims of half-ripe people who managed to rise to the top. The result is a boundless confusion. All respect for age, position disappears. The old, the noble alike suffer from the mindless violence of mere boys and the scum of the nation. And I cannot help but to think of what's going on in Portland right now. You have these dual protests going on. You got Antifa, and then you got these conservative right wing guys or whatever, and they're literally in the streets clashing. I was watching video of this. Literally, and I'm just sitting there going, Where are the cops? <laughs> they're just rioting in the street. They got full gear, they got batons. I mean, this is, what is this? We're divulging into anarchy. And I'm thinking, Okay, keep it exegetical, keep it exegetical. <laughs> but I'm thinking, You know what the Bible says? Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Any people. So that's a nomic, universal, timeless truth that the Bible is trying to tell us. You want to pursue the, co- the course of port- postmodernism and existentialism and relativism and moral relativism in your country? Okay, you watch what I'm going to do. 
I'm going to put the whole city in the hands of fickle, whimsical, half-ripe young people that haven't a clue. It's like giving a child a steering wheel. And seeking to end the anarchy, look at verse 5. Israel panics and attempts to put into leadership anyone who would dare to lead at this time. It says in verse 5, the people will be oppressed, each one according to his neighbor, or each one by another, and each one by his neighbor. The youth will storm against the elder and the inferior against the noble. Look at verse 6. When a man lays hold of his brother in his father's house, saying, You have a cloak, you shall be our ruler, and these ruins will be under your charge. He will protest on that day, saying, I will not be your healer. For in my house there is neither bread nor cloak. You should not appoint me ruler of the people. So in other words, any nobility that's left, anyone that you think you might find refuge in, anyone you perceive to be a person of character, of wisdom, is not qualified anymore because they don't have any reason to be qualified because there's nothing to salvage. There's no bread in my house. How in the world am I going to rule over you? Uh, This is total anarchy that took place. You know something about Judah? Remember, Israel to the north, Judah to the south. Something about Judah that is particularly sinful. Even as the book of Isaiah is going to roll on, Judah saw the destruction of Israel. They saw what Assyria did to Israel. They should have learned what God was capable of. Israel was toppled. But it doesn't. And so Judah will actually undergo even a worse calamity than, than did Israel. It's just amazing, breathtaking. What's the result of all this? Look at verse 8. Total, complete, and utter national guilt. Because it wasn't just sins against humanity. It wasn't just social disorder, dysfunction. It wasn't just that people became lazier, prideful, or arrogant. No, their sin was leveled directly against the Lord. They rebelled against Him. For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their actions are against the Lord. To rebel, watch this now, to rebel against His glorious presence. I think that becomes exegetically significant if you keep your eye on the ball here, okay? We'll talk about that in a minute. The expression of their faces bears witness against them, and they display their sin like Sodom. They do not even conceal it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. Say to the righteous that it will go well with them, for they will eat the fruit of their actions. If Judah wants to be openly embracing what is shameful, God is ready to repay them tenfold as God reverses their social order. If children, listen now, if children will not lead, then they will rule. Or, excuse me, if children will not be led, if they will not be ruled, they will rule. If you don't want to have obedient children, remember, under the law, under the covenant, Deuteronomy chapter, uh, I think it's chapter 19, where it talks about this, uh, uh, an insubordinate child, uh, incorrigible children, they face the death penalty. So children that are out of control, no one to respond to that insubordination 
God is going to give you exactly what you want. If you don't want to rule over your children, your children will rule over you. If women are not protected, guess what? They will be tasked with being the protectors of the nation, which in that ancient Near Eastern world was a shame, not a badge of honor. I mean, there's just something to that. If Judah will not stop oppressing its people, it will be oppressed. And so, read with me. Verse 12, O my people, their oppressors are children, and women rule over them. Stop right there because we're in the 21st century where a statement like that is unacceptable. How dare you, Isaiah? Don't you understand political correctness? No, he doesn't. And again, do you even comprehend the barbarity of the ancient world? I don't think you do. Uh, this is why in chapter 1, the, late, the women in the, in the nation are literally crying out for just any man that will take, take us in and protect us, take us in, we'll do anything. We won't bother you, we'll eat our own food, we'll, we'll wear our own clothes, we won't, be a, we won't be a bother to you, just let us be called by your name. Some sort of protection or covering. No. Instead, God is going to task the women to rule over the people to protect them. What a shame. I mean, there's just something natural in the social order of that. I had a young lady came here once and asked me, what's your position with uh, women in leadership and uh, especially in society, like women in military, women in police? I'm like, oh boy, you're going to ask me that? I said, well, um, uh, biblically, I don't, have a, I don't have a verse that would tell you that forbids you as a woman to be a police officer or something like that. I said, but you know, I, I, I personally, my, my personal opinion is that if you look at texts like this passage in Isaiah, I don't think it's God's best. I don't think it's God's best for a woman to be guarding over, you know, a male criminal, for example. I mean, is that really what we want to do in this country? Matter of fact, I read a, I read a report, I read a, a, a news story where a, a, a lady cop was in a courtroom with a big criminal, and during his defense, and she was just a lady cop watching this big guy. And what happened was unthinkable. Well, not really. He took her gun, almost beat her to death, shot the judge before he was stopped and apprehended. And I remember that, that story surfaced on the news. And somebody on the news said, you know what was missing from that courtroom? M-E-N. Men to stop that guy. I mean, how? who puts... Something like a situation like that. It's like I tell kids when I'm preaching about biblical roles uh, at UNT because this comes up all the time. It's unavoidable, guys. I mean, we can't avoid it as Christians today. I say, you know, somebody breaks into my home. I don't give my wife the bat and I'll say, you go take care of it, honey. I'll stay here with the kids. I mean, really, this is where... And you know what I get back? (laughs) What if she's a Navy SEAL? (laughs) What if she's an MMA fighter? Yeah, that's really what God wants. Oh, my people, those who guide you, lead you astray and confuse the direction of your paths. What do you mean? Verse 15. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord of hosts. So in other words, they have openly oppressed the weakest people in their society. Don't forget who Israel, who Judah is. They were meant to be a 
shadow, a type, a sign of the kingdom of God to come. And in God's kingdom, we don't oppress the weakest among us. We minister to them. We minister to them. Now, the social justice gospel makes the error of taking a passage like this and thinking that it is once again Christianity's task to go into a fallen society and to try to administer this sort of social justice as if we can turn the tide of society today. But that's not what this is all meant to do. This is actually not even Isaiah's remedy. It's just to illustrate the fact that Israel needs a heart change. And that's something that only comes through regeneration, not through political activism. Next, God is going to not only take away the supply, the support, the security of the nation, but He's also going to humble the vanity of the people. Again, verses 16 to 17, beauty becomes horror. 18 to 23, possessions become plunder. And verse 25, protectors will be liabilities. Leading all the way up to verse 1 of chapter 4, where honor ultimately becomes shame. That's what happens. Now, such vanity is reinforced by the fact that Judah at this time was in love with itself, total narcissistic, materialistic idolatry. And at the pinnacle of that, at the very root or the very expression of that is the vanity of the daughters of Zion. Look at verse 16. Moreover, the Lord, because the daughters of Zion are proud. Who are the daughters of Zion? Well, There's two positions on this. Number one, the daughters of Zion can refer to all the women in the whole entire society. Or, probably more accurate, as Alec Mater and other people have pointed out, it probably refers to women, the the elite women of the culture, those that were in the palace guard, those that were dwelling among the political and military elites, those women of high esteem. Those women had become icons, not of righteousness and humility, they had become icons, symbols of sensuality totally polluting the nation. In the words of John, in 1 John, they love the world and the things of the world, and thus the love of the Father was not in them. And you can see what happens. He flips it all around. Because on, in, in one moment we see them walking around, the heads are held high, seductive eyes, they go around mincing steps, tinkle the bangles on their feet, and they even talk about mincing steps actually refers to uh, like a, a band that they would wear around their feet so that they couldn't walk in a certain way. They were forced to walk in a very dainty sort of vain sort of... I mean, they perfected vanity. Does that remind you of anybody? How about our culture? Perfecting vanity, are you kidding me? I mean, Trish and I were out one day just walking around, one of our favorite uh, shopping centers to walk around, and then, you know, we'd been there a few weeks and we're showing Eden a beautiful fountain and this and that. And then right in the spot where we like to sit and sort of just hang out and talk, boom, up comes a giant Victoria's Secret store with public pornography plastered all over the windows of that store. This is our culture. And then across the street, you have another store with, it's a makeup cosmetic store, with a man with a beard putting on lipstick and saying, our new normal. This is our culture. Man, if Israel perfected vanity, what have we done? God have mercy on our culture. 
And so you see this, this background, this backdrop. But God's going to remove all of this immodesty, all of this unchastity. Look at what God does. God, therefore, will afflict the scalp of the daughters of Zion with scabs. So much for the beauty industry. The Lord will make their foreheads bare. In that day, the, the Lord will take away the beauty of their anklets, headbands, crescent ornaments, dangling earrings, bracelets, veils, headdresses, ankle chains, sashes, perfume boxes, amulets, finer, uh, finger rings, nose rings, festival robes, outer tunics, cloaks, money purses, hand mirrors, undergarments, turbans, and veils. He will remove it all. No, I'm not going to do an exegetical uh, examination of each one of those. <laughs> you get the point. They were materialistic to the core. And God's going to remove their materialistic ways. Now it will come about that instead of sweet perfume, there'll be putrefaction. Instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, a plucked-out scalp. Instead of fine clothes, donning of sackcloth. Which sackcloth, you remember, is kind of like a rough, hairy, coarse kind of material. doesn't feel good on your skin. The, br- the branding instead of beauty. Wow. They'll be treated like cattle. Your men will fall by the sword. Here we go. This is the protectors becoming liabilities. Men who were supposed to protect the women. They're going to fall by the wayside. They're going to fall by the sword. Your mighty ones are going to die in battle. And her gates will lament and mourn. Deserted, she will sit on the ground. And so what ends up happening here is that Isaiah paints a picturing of a smoldering heap of ashes and on top of which sits an abandoned, destitute, desolate woman, exposed, vulnerable, and deserted, left with no hope. That's the portrait we're supposed to get. That that's the state of the nation. And so my next point is this, because at this point, reaching down to chapter 3, at this point, all that we have left is a heap of ashes. No remedy, no recourse, no hope. This is like the gospel, right? That's the bad news of the gospel. You're destitute, you're naked, you're poor, you're blind, you're wretched. And if you don't see your sin and your misery, you will never see the beauty that is about to come. And so, God brings beauty from ashes and redemption from ruin. Here's the point. Through Jesus Christ. Where is Jesus Christ? Read it with me. Verse 2. In that day. Now, just for your hermeneutics, everyone. Circle that. Underline that. Because in the book of Isaiah and for the prophets, in that day is code for Isaiah is now forecasting something further into the future. He's no longer talking about the historical fulfillment of Israel in the 6th, 7th century B.C. Now he's literally catapulting us forward to another time. Amazing the way the prophets do that. In other words, in that day is code for eschatology. In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the earth will be the pride and the adornment of the survivors of Israel. I tell you what, there's so much there. My original plan, which was 
dashed to pieces by this text <laughs> was to go all the way down to verse 6, but you can't. It's too much here, especially verses 2, or excuse me, verse 3 to 6. If anything, if anything, verse 2 is kind of a summary of verses 3 to 6. You see that there? So in verse 2, we kind of have a summary because here he's giving us the whole enchilada. It's like this is the whole messianic glory right here in verse 2. And then he kind of dips back down into the various practical and particular components of how is that going to all happen. But first, he wants to speak of the branch of the Lord. There's so many different things that emerge here, brothers and sisters. There's three things that emerge here. Chapter 4, deliverance, judgment, and consummation. Deliverance, judgment, and consummation. Today, we will only deal with the first, deliverance. And what kind of deliverance is this? This is messianic deliverance. That's what it is. We get this from the, uh, from the phrase, the branch of the Lord, Yahweh Tzamah. Tzamah is the branch or the shoot or the stem. You have different translations of that Hebrew word, but ultimately refers to the same reality. It is the branch. It is the stem of Jesse. Now turn over with me in your Bibles to chapter 11 of Isaiah, verse 1. Ready? This is an elaborate theology here of the Messiah. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. So from the stem of Jesse literally means the branch, metaphorical, of a, you know, a branch out of a tree, right? What is that? What is that meant to do? It's meant to bring us into the family tree of David. That's what it's meant to do. See that? So this is a biblical way of saying, from the family tree of David, Jesse will come a Davidic ruler, a Davidic king, a Davidic Messiah, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Verse 2, this is jumping ahead a little bit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. Praise the Lord. So this branch, therefore, is totally, absolutely messianic. In every way. And as a matter of fact, it is this branch that sort of, sort of ties the whole Bible together. Turn with me in your Bibles, as a matter of fact, to Revelation, the very end of your Bible. No, not the concordance. Revelation 22. Verse 16. I, Jesus have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. Here it is. I am the root, the descendant of David. He could have just as easily said, I am the branch and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. You see that? So all the way to the end, all the way to the consummation, there Jesus is assigning to himself, he's attributing to himself these messianic and Davidic prophecies by saying, I am the branch. Can't get any clearer than that. Now, this messianic deliverance. First, the text moves in this Christ-centered way to speak about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The person and the work. As to the person, as chapter 11 has told us, 
He is the branch of, he's the stem of Jesse. He is the Davidic seed. Jer- Let me give you some text on this. Jeremiah 23, verse 5. Behold, the days are coming. Just, see, see, just the way Isaiah introduced his oracle, his prophecy. Jeremiah, same thing. The days are coming, or in that day, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. Jeremiah 33, verse 15, In those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. Zechariah chapter 3, verse 8. I give you all these not because it's not hard to proof text like this. I give you these to show you Jeremiah, Zechariah, Isaiah, John and Revelation, they all think with the same mind. And what that shows us, ultimately, doctrine of inspiration, is that there is one final divine authorship of Scripture that stands behind it all, tying it all together, right? I marvel at... But uh, Zechariah 3.8 says, Now listen, Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you, indeed, they they are men who are a symbol for behold... I'm going to bring in my servant, the branch. The friends of Joshua, the high priest, by the way, these friends are symbolic of what? They're symbolic of the fact that God is going to bring back a remnant. So these friends are the little tiny remnant of the friends of Joshua, and they symbolize survivors that came out of exile. So that's the symbolism of the friends. But from this context, you can see that what Isaiah is talking about here is he sees it really from two different vantage points. The perspective... Uh, from two perspectives, basically. The aspects of the Messiah, His origin and His nature. Number one, notice the text back in Isaiah. He is the branch of the Lord. He comes from the Lord. He's from the branch of the Lord, but I want you to see something else because there's another predication here. Not only is He the branch of the Lord, but He's also, watch this, the fruit of the earth. Because these are put in parallel to one another. Branch of the Lord, so follow, follow carefully here. Branch of the Lord, fruit of the earth, these are put in synonymous parallelism next to each other. We have to unearth, how does he do that? Why does he do that? And so first, of course, because he is from the Lord, we can say this implies as much that the Redeemer will come to us from the realm of endless days. He he, 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 this is basically, if we want to go into systematic theology, this is his eternal procession from the Father, right? So this is the Son that comes from the Father. This is the servant of the Lord that Isaiah is going to talk so much about. But he is also to be identified with the people from the earth. Ha'eretz, uh, from the land. That's interesting. Because, as the book of Hebrews tells us, he will be one of them. He will be their brethren. He will come from a woman. Galatians 4.4 In the fullness of the time, God sent forth his son, born under the law, born of a woman. And so he comes from their midst to dwell in their midst. And so what Isaiah is foreseeing, therefore, what he envisions ultimately here is this Emmanuel principle where God will take on human nature and dwell in the midst of His people. We don't give the prophets enough credit. Isaiah 7, verse 10, 
The Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it as deep as Sheol, deep as the netherworld, deep out of this realm, in other words, or high as heaven. Ask for yourself a sign that is transcendently deep. What is that sign? And Ahaz says, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. He's like, I ain't going to talk to that. I don't know what to ask and not, not even going to pretend to ask. So no thanks, Lord. I won't even speak at this point. You're asking me to ask you for a sign so deep it's high as heaven? Zip. I know my answer is going to be wrong. He's probably talking. He's probably, I read the book of Job. I saw what you did. I saw what you did to him, you know. I'm God, you're a man, come here. I'm going to question you, I'm going to ask you. And what does Job do? <laughs> Just throw myself in the dust, no thanks. The fear of the Lord gripped Ahaz's heart. Then he said, listen now, house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Manuel. This is the principle at work. He is the branch of the Lord and He is the fruit of the earth. Isaiah sees both in the person of Christ, who He is and what He will do. He is the branch and He will bring in a glorious redemption. How do we know He's going to bring in a glorious redemption? Did you miss it? Back in chapter 4. I didn't read anything about no redemption. Yeah, you did. I read it to you on record (laughs) he says here he'll be the pride and the adornment of the survivors of Israel see not too long ago we preached a sermon go back to chapter 1 wherein we saw the hope of Israel once again chapter 1 verse 9 remember same sort of cycle calamity destitution desolate a wasteland, God reduces the people down to dust, and then an oracle of hope. Unless the Lord had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would have become like under Gomorrah. In other words, just a heap of ruins. We would have been just judgment, no mercy, just judgment. And so the survivors of Israel constitute the righteous, repentant remnant of Israel, the remnant that will return. And by their existence, God is giving us a picture of election. That's what Romans chapter 9 is all about. It's all about how God chooses and He redeems who He wills. Evidence. Chapter nine, a verse, or chapter one, verse nine. Unless the Lord would have left us a few survivors, see. Because what can man do other than just perish? We just read chapter three. They're gone. The rulers are gone. The captains are gone. The military people are gone. The politicians are gone. The spiritual people are gone. Any mighty man, a strong man, it's all gone. No recourse. No strength. No hope. So the Lord leaves a few survivors, and these survivors remind us of the scope and the extent of the Messiah's redemption. It's not to everyone. 
God's redemption does not extend to everyone. It is those whom the Lord leaves. It's more precisely those whom the Lord in His mercy chooses. I just remember as a young Christian being smacked upside the head of the doctrine of election. And you know where our sinful carnal mind goes? That oracle is meant to provide us hope. You know where my sinful, carnal, fallen mind goes? Wait a minute. God doesn't choose everyone? It's so, it's so unheavenly what I just thought. It should be, wait a minute. God chose someone? Why? Don't you see what it says? They just broke His law. They broke His covenant. They sinned against His glorious presence. And God chose. And we know the rest of the story. God chooses not just a few remnant, but that's emblematic of the fact of the principle of election. And the principle of election results in the fact that there will be an innumerable, untold number of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Fast forward to Revelation chapter 5, and they will all worship around the throne and around the Lamb. That's what's going on here. Oh, I tell you what. They should have been left like Sodom, like Gomorrah. But God, in an act of free and sovereign grace, shows mercy. They should have been buried underneath the ashes of their own sin. And God should have just slammed the door shut. But as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, takes the picture of Judah now as this abandoned, desolate woman sitting a top a heap of ashes i just see her there just you know with her mascara running and her hair all brittle and dry and destitute and left to die and god cleans her up gives her a name gives her life because that's who god is he is the redeemer he redeems his people what does paul say to the praise of the glory of his grace No other reason. But we also see the result of this. We see the person of Christ. We see the scope of His work. But we also see the result of the Savior's work. That that there will be beauty. Now, here we go. The greatness of what Isaiah gives us here is what we can call revolutions of redemption, brothers and sisters, because everything that was lost in chapter 3 is regained in chapter 4. Now listen. Beauty. Glory, pride, adornment, honor. Anybody see Donald Trump's 4th of July celebration? Uh, Don't laugh. I saw it. Jets flying over the head. Tanks rolling out in front of the people. Glory, honor. I mean, they were showing emotional, you know, inspiring There's nothing wrong with pride if you are proud. Or what does Paul say? Let him who boasts, boast not in patriotism. Boast not in vanity, beauty, material possessions, wealth. Don't boast in that. Let your boast be in the Lord. And guess what, brothers and sisters? What this is telling us right here is that you can glut yourself on that kind of boasting. There is no excess 
to the amount of boasting that you can do in the Lord. Isn't it just like sin? That there's no excess. You can have as much of the fruit of the Spirit as you want. My wife wanted me to teach today in Sunday school on the fruit of the Spirit. I should have. I didn't, Trish. I did probably what you didn't want me to do because I taught biblical theology. Sorry. But (laughs) hopefully the Lord will redeem some of that. Now, that's a conversation for later. (laughs) She really wanted me to talk about that. Uh, But she's right in that point. It's the fruit of the Spirit. There is no limit to it. What does Paul say? Faithfulness, gentleness, kindness, peace, love, joy, right? Against these things, what? There is no law. No law. There is no thou shalt not rejoice thus this much. Thou shalt not love this much. The fruit of the Spirit is endless. It's, it's limitless what you can have of it. And that's exactly what Messiah is going to bring here. He's going to restore beauty. He's going to restore glory. He's going to restore the pride and the adornment, or the word adornment can also mean honor of the people. These are powerful forces. Chapter 3 just illustrated Judah sought beauty, glory, vanity, and all the wrong things. Their finery, their vanity, their fashions, their cultural elitism, and God removes all of that. And what does He replace it with? What the people sought in the work of their own hands, brothers and sisters, in a sinister and a sensual way, Isaiah sees that only God can deliver in what the world promises. So this is incentive. I don't think we do this enough. You follow me? I don't think we do this enough where we set the prospect of more to the sinner. Let me say that again. Maybe a different way. Where we set in front of our neighbor the prospect of more than drywall. More than cars. More than technology. We're not good at it. I'm not good at it. I get, you know, I'm preaching at UNT. I just want to just, you know, confront arguments and rebuke. And like, you know, Paul says, you know, rebuke those that contradict, okay? But what about setting forth Christ and the glory and the life that he can give? Isn't that what Jesus himself did? Where did we come? How did we get to this point where we so, in a reductionistic, minimizing way, a minimalistic way, reduce evangelism to just uttering off the law, which I support, okay, so Ray Comfort's listening, don't get mad at me, but uttering, you know, rattling off the Ten Commandments and then telling them repent and believe in Christ. But where do... Where do we, like Jesus, tell the woman at the well, if you drink of the water that I give you, you will never thirst. Oh, does that sound good? So how about I illustrate where your world falls short? How about, I, like, like Israel, how about I illustrate to you that all your ankle rings, your nose rings, all your dresses, your vanity, all your, visit, all your, 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 your stops at the salon, all the, all the times you do your nails, all the liposuction and the Botox and everything that you're doing to yourself. Why don't we talk about that coming to an end? Then what? What happens when beauty fades and 
the deceit of your charm comes out. Where do you go then? What are you trusting in there? Where's your satisfaction then? So this is really telling us of the satisfying nature of Jesus Christ. There's so many ways. One of the hardest things about a sermon like this is how do you title it? What did I say? God brings beauty from ashes and redemption from ruin through Jesus Christ. Insufficient because he brings more than that. He brings life. He brings breath and depth. He brings dignity. He brings meaning. He brings purpose to life. Guys, we have gospel opportunities all over the place in our culture to show people. You know, I was at the gym the other day working out. A guy looked over at me and he goes, you think that was hard? Wait till you're my age. I'm like, oh, thanks. <laughs> I mean, it gets harder. Yeah, I mean, I knew that, but you know, it's like you don't know. Yeah. Yeah, eventually, you know, your muscles won't work anymore. You know, you can put on as much makeup as you want, ladies. Just forget it. It ain't going to do you no good at a certain age. No, no, it's not that. Anyway, next point. (laughs) Hey, Isaiah said it, not me. Your beauty is going to run out. Vanity of vanities, y'all. And then what will you have in that day? We don't learn to satisfy ourselves in Christ. What will we satisfy ourselves in? Therefore, what Isaiah sees is something otherworldly. Oh, we can commune with Christ now. We can partake of it now. We can taste of it now. But it is a foretaste. And what Isaiah sees, he doesn't just see the foretaste. He sees the consummate taste. He sees the consummate enthrallment of the people of God. How? As God in heaven will shine forth with limitless beauty and limitless glory and limitless power and you and I will be suited to enjoy it. Can you believe it? I think that what Jesus inaugurated in Incarnation is just, again, it's just a foretaste of all this. The life, the death, the resurrection of Christ, what it's meant to do is to signify to us the powers of the age to come as uh, the book of Hebrews even tells us of this future age where we will see the glory of God. Then, then, then. This is a total play on words. The pride and the adornment of the land. That will be it. That, that, that will be it. It will be the, the fruit of the earth. The, 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 what will rise up out of the earth, the Messiah, He will be our pride. Alec Mater, in his wonderful commentary on the book of Isaiah, says this, talking about these reversals, right? Because where vanity and materialism and sensuality could not satisfy the people, Isaiah's prophecy promises more, more through Jesus Christ as He becomes the all-satisfying center of it all. He says in chapter 3, verse 18, they sought a false, transient beauty, a finery, the Hebrew word, teperet. But now they discern true beauty in Him, in the branch. He beautifies them. The middle words, glory, pride, dignity, point to a great change. That's where I get redemptive revolutions that are taking place through redemption. Glory had been their destruction. Pride had been their ruin. Listen now. Now the divine glory dwells among them. They rightly pride themselves in Him and He imparts to them 
the true dignity. Wow! That's glorious. And so, Isaiah's prophecy amounts to what will later be an invitation to partake of that fullness. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Isaiah 55. If Jesus, if the branch, if Messiah is to be this all-satisfying Redeemer, Savior, and Lord, then certainly we need to hear Isaiah's invitation to partake of that. And, and, And I'm going somewhere here, so we're almost there, but don't check out. Preachers are not supposed to say I'm almost done. Because statistically, people check out. But not, in, not at Heritage Grace. You guys hang in there with me to the end. But you see this. Isaiah 55, verses 1 to 3, totally related, totally connected to the theology of chapter 4. Because uh, what happens is that the branch becomes the servant. And the servant is the servant of the Lord that ushers in the eschaton. It's, it's just amazing. And, it's, and in the very uh, immediate context here, it's Zion, just like in chapter 4. So we're talking new creation. He sets forth the glories of Jesus. Isaiah says, come. Look at verse 1. 55 verse 1. Ho, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And you who have no money, come. Buy and eat. Come. Buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me. Eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance, by the way, brothers and sisters, this is a command. Eat. Delight. If you're not delighting in this, the whole Bible is saying you are ripping yourself off. You are cheating yourself of what is life indeed. He says, incline your ear. Come to me. Listen that you may live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercy shown to David. Now this is what's remarkable. Pulling from this exact text, Jesus in Revelation says, just like Isaiah says three times, come, come, come. Revelation 22, verse 17, the Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty, come, let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost, unlike the trappings of the transient possessions in our carnal vanities In our fallen beauty, brothers and sisters, here there is no excess. Here there is no dissipation to the enthrallment of the Messiah's majesty. No end to the joy of Messiah's glory and the pleasures that are at God's right hand. So, what ends up happening is this. I need to pray for you. And I need to pray for me. That we will not, in the spirit of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we will not, as Paul warns us, commit the same error that Israel committed. 
He says in the book of Hebrews that these things were written so that we would not crave evil things like they did. In other words, the sinister history of Israel, the saga of redemption there, the the blighted, blotted history of Israel, the black sin of Israel, still ever relevant for us. And so the principle we need to learn is let us, in the spirit of Isaiah's words, delight ourselves in what is true abundance. Isn't it marvelous? God did not say, in order for you to do this now, you need to run out the door, go out and do all these things, adhere to all these things, perform all these things, go grab all these gadgets, do all these rituals. You know what? He summed it all up in one person, Christ. Know Him. Delight in Him. Commune with Him. Trust in Him. And you'll experience the intended foretaste of your eternal inheritance which is Christ forevermore. Oh, man. How do Christians not want to get to know Jesus more? What do you think you're going to do in eternity? For all eternity, what do you think you're going to do? No more television. Well, I think. (laughs) No more TV. Okay? No more recreations till we're blue in the face. You know? No more narcissistic type of self-absorption. What are we going to do? We're going to find out about Him. We're going to delight in Him. We're going to marvel at Him. First, He's got to wipe the tears off our eyes because we cry for eternity. But once He dries our ears and sets us back on our feet, we will be enthralled with Him for all eternity. And so why are we occupied with this today? It should be our daily obsession. Father, Lord, we confess to You now and openly that it's not our daily obsession the weakness of our flesh. The psalmist says, Lord, you know that we are but dust. Job says, Oh God, I am breath. Lord, you know how transient we are, how weak and fading and fallible. But we also know what your word says. We can delight ourselves in the law of the Lord. We know what your word says. In Him is life. We know what Paul says. Repent that times of refreshing would come upon you. We know what your word says. That as we feast on your word, we will grow in our joy. And so God, we pray, help us to abide in Him so that His joy would be our joy and His joy would be made complete in us. And so forgive us, Lord. I I think we all, if we're honest, we have way too much in common with sinful Israel. We're way too concerned about physical things, materialistic things, everything from fashion to technology, external appearance, and everything in between. Help us, O God. Pry these things from us. Let them not become a source of idolatry in our lives. Help us to hold these things in proper tension. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, help us to use the world, but not make full use of it. Not to fully give our hearts to it. Because it will 
always disappoint us and always let us down. And so, Lord, teach us the mystery of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 4. To be content in every circumstance. Because Jesus was content every circumstance. Help us to abide in that, Lord. We thank you, bless you, Lord, for your word today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.